Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. WNYC Studios is supported by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, software for technical computing and model-based design. MathWorks, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com slash air. Imagine you're a chinstrap penguin and you are in dire need of a nap, but at what cost? So there is a trade-off between being awake and vigilant and being sleeping and having the benefit of sleep. It's Monday, December 18th, and oh, would you look at that? It's Science Friday. I'm sci-fi producer Rasha Aridi, and we've got a double feature for you today. A bit later, we'll dive into the strange sleeping habits of chinstrap penguins, who take thousands of naps a day. Must be nice. But before we get there, straight out of a sci-fi flick, how researchers are trying to make sense of a mysterious cosmic ray. Have you ever heard of the oh my god particle? Me neither. But physicists love to give subatomic particles cool names. And back in 1992, when they discovered the highest energy cosmic ray ever discovered, they christened it as the Oh My God particle because it was really powerful and really mysterious. They had no explanation for it. Hence, OMG. Fast forward to around two years ago, sensors in Utah desert detect the arrival of a second very high energy cosmic ray the second most powerful they've ever seen. And while the researchers are convinced that the cosmic ray was real, many aspects of the event don't really make sense. It's more powerful than anything we can make on Earth and seems to come from nowhere in the sky. The researchers recently described their observations in the journal Science. Joining me now to talk about the find is one of the co-authors of that report, Dr. John Matthews, research professor in physics and astronomy, manager of the Cosmic Ray Physics Program at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. This new cosmic ray find, would it be the oh my god dot two of particles? (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to describe it. The oh my God particle, you know, somebody was looking at an event to say and said, oh my God, what was that? In this case, we found it a little bit later because of the different kind of detectors that were observing it. And uh, people said, wow, that's really an impressive energy. That needs a name. Let's start with the basics. What is a cosmic ray and where does it come from? All those kinds of things. 
So a cosmic ray is a particle from space. Some can come from within the galaxy, some from outside the galaxy. They can be photons, so particles of light. They can be electrons. At this energy, they're often uh, subatomic particles like a proton. They could be a helium nucleus. In this case, we, we think it's a proton probably. Mm -hmm. And how do you detect them? What does your detector look like? Particles at this energy, they're relatively rare. So uh, sort of one particle per square kilometer per century. So really rare. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so you detect them in an indirect way. The particle comes in from space. It collides with the nucleus of an atom high up in the atmosphere. It smashes apart uh, that nucleus and you get a bunch of secondary particles. They travel a short distance and do the same thing, and you get what's called an extensive air shower. So you sprinkle the desert with detectors uh, that are about the size of a ping pong table, and uh, when those charged particles reach the Earth's surface, they pass through those detectors and generate light, which are detectors measure, and then that's a sample of how many charged particles pass through. Mm -hmm. So around two years ago, you detected this unusual particle. How unusual was it? Well, it's so unusual that uh, 30 years later, it's the second one in this energy range. <laughs> At low energies, we're seeing them several a night or more, depending on the energy range. At high energies, they're really, really rare. At low energies, two are passing through your head every second. But at these high energies, you know, it's one per square kilometer per century. So it's really a rare event. When we say that they're powerful, though, when you talk about how powerful this is, what kind of power are we talking about? This event uh, comes in with an energy of like 40 joules. This particle, if you read the paper, is uh, 244 EEV, uh, XL electron volts, which that is really not enough. <laughs> a relatable term. But if you say 40 joules, then what that means for an ordinary object is uh, like a four kilogram object dropped from one meter on earth. So if 10 pound object dropped it on the floor, it's that much energy. But instead of being in a brick or something, that's all contained in a single proton. So you're saying if you hold a brick at waist height and drop it on your foot, that's what you'd be feeling. That's what you'd be feeling if you absorbed all of that energy from that particle. Wow, then that's all packed into one tiny subatomic particle. Exactly, which is pretty amazing amount of energy. It's millions of times more energy than we can generate in protons here at Earth, for example, at uh, the Large Hadron Collider. Mm, no kidding. And one of the mysteries about this is that it's coming from, as I said, Nowhere. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the real mysteries is in the last 20-ish years since 2008 when we've been operating the telescope array, we've detected 30 particles that are in not too much farther from this, but uh, above 10 to the 20th electron volts. And they all appear to come from nowhere. And in specific, these really, really high ones, high energy ones that come from 
the great void next to us or the oh my god particle comes from someplace else none of them really looks like they come from any place you might expect do we know what produced them then obviously not if we don't know where they came from that's that's the mystery and that's why we have experiments like the telescope array and the pierre roger experiment in argentina because people would really love to know where these things are coming from but uh, so far, we're not able to really identify the sources. Any conjecture? Any Anybody have any bets going on or what it might be? Well, the conjectures are things like uh, what's called an active galactic nuclei, which is a, a big, supermassive black hole with stuff swirling around it and really energetic jets of particles shooting out of it, that stuff that didn't quite get sucked in. Uh, that's one possibility. More fanciful ideas are things like, well, maybe it's a decay of a dark matter particle that nobody can see, and, and it decays and then shoots out these really energetic particles. If it was something like that, that might explain why it's coming from nowhere or everywhere. Could it also mean that we need new physics to talk about this. If it was dark matter decays, we would need new physics and we would need to be able to find something like dark matter. And that's something people are really looking hard to find, but so far have uh, been unsuccessful. So this really must be keeping physicists up late at night or scratching their heads? Exactly. Well, we're up late at night all the time because <laughs> <laughs> that's the nature of our business. <laughs> uh, how, how far away are these possible? I mean, can you determine if you don't know where they're coming from? Can you determine how far away that nothing is? So that's a big part of the mystery. They they should come from someplace, quote unquote, close, because uh, otherwise they'd collide with the microwave background and then they would uh, lose their energy. So what do you have to do to figure this out? I mean, what do you do? You need new equipment. Do you need new theories? We need new equipment and more data. So new equipment in the sense that uh, it'd be nice to have bigger detectors. Right now, the telescope array is about uh, 1,000 square kilometers. We'd like to finish our expansion to 3,000 square kilometers, which is like the size of Rhode Island. Ideally, it would be nice to have muon detectors, but those would be really expensive. So really, the answer is more bigger, better detectors. People talk about putting detectors out in space that would do similar things. There are other groups, right, with detectors looking at different areas? Well, the other main group at the moment is uh, the Pierre Roger project, which is down in Argentina, sort of in a space that's very similar to our space in, in Delta, Utah. There's other groups like USO, the Extreme Universe Space Observatory, or POEMA, which would launch satellites up into space or put detectors on the space station and try to find them events that way. Do all the groups around the, the world that are looking for the particles, are they seeing the same ones or the same amounts? Uh, that's actually a good question, because uh, if you look at uh, what we see here in Utah, uh, you can see the, the spectrum or the flux of how these things arrive at different energies as a function of time. And 
in Argentina, they look and they see something very similar. However, when you look at the details at the very highest energies, the Pierre Auger experiment sees a, an energy cutoff that's at a significantly lower energy than what we're seeing at uh, telescope array. So we've been looking and looking for a reason for that. And so far, we haven't been able to explain it. But one explanation is there's just different sources in the northern hemisphere than in the southern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, they're looking more at the center of the galaxy. And here in the northern hemisphere, we're looking more away from the galactic center. I get it. Are there any theories about what these could be, where they're coming from, that could be tested to see if they're correct or not? Well, the test is, can you point it back to some object? And at a little bit lower energies, we're starting to see hints of some things, but not at these really high energies. And uh, is that frustrating or fun? Oh, it's both frustrating and fun. Uh, it's frustrating in the sense you'd you'd really like to find the sources of these events and you know that would be very fulfilling if we could really nail down what these things would be on the other hand there's a lot of mystery and fun in the chase and uh, you keep working at it trying to find new and better ways to figure out what these things are and where they're coming from well you're not the first physicist who said that the chase is more fun than the actual discovery <laughs> so well, you got to be uh, an optimist when you're in this kind of business. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be checking back in with you when you get some uh, new stuff. Is that okay? Oh, that would be great. Thank you very much. We have run out of time, Dr. Matthews. Dr. John Matthews is a research professor in physics and astronomy, manager of the Cosmic Ray Physics Program at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been great. Science Friday is supported by Zbiotics. The team of PhD scientists at Zbiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre-alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com/friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com/friday and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You know that feeling when you're just so tired that your head starts to droop, your eyes feel heavy, and you drift off for just a moment before you snap back into alertness, wondering what in the world just happened? You know, sleep comes in a variety of snoozes and sizes. We humans are not going to get a full night's rest by 
nodding off here and there, but that's pretty much what chin-strap penguins do. They doze off more than 10,000 times a day for just a few seconds at a time. And when you do the math, it adds up to an easy, breezy 11 hours of sleep each day. So why do they do this and how? These are findings from a new study in the journal Science, and joining me is one of the authors, Dr. Paul-Antoine Liberel, sleep biologist at the Neurosciences Research Center of Lyon in France. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Yeah, thank you. Hi there. Tell me what's happening in the penguins' brains. Are they getting that, that full REM sleep like we get? So we have recorded the penguin brain indeed, and we have recorded... Uh their brain activity for several hours, several days, actually, even days. And we have been able to detect the classical two types of sleep states that we found in mammals and birds, slow-wave sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. Slow-wave sleep occurs in the penguin briefly, and REM sleep also occurs in very short boots, like uh, in other birds. What was the most interesting things in the in the penguin was the duration of their sleep, actually. You say, yeah, durations, just for how many seconds at a time? Their slow-wave sleep duration is four seconds in mean. Um, they get 75% of their sleep quantity with boots that last 10 seconds maximum. Wow, an average of only four seconds per nap? Now, why would they do that? This is a... A big and interesting question. We know that there is several pressure on sleep because when animals are sleeping, they are not aware of their environment. They have a, a decrease in their vigilance. And then it's not really good for parental care, for having active behavior. So there is a trade-off between being awake and vigilant and uh, being sleeping and having the benefit of sleep, but with uh, a decrease in the, the vigilance. So we, we think that this is a way that the evolution uh, find to help the penguin to remain vigilant and uh, sleeping at the same time. Because the penguins are, are vigilant over their eggs while they stand up, aren't they? And they're, and they're chicks. This is what we think. And we also observe the correlation with the very fast eye closure. So they open the eyes, they close the eyes, sometimes from one side, two eyes at the same time, or only one eyes. We think that this fast change of brain state, sleep and wake, uh, is a way to cut the level of vigilance. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And, and how do the chinstrap penguins go about their day if they're constantly sleeping and waking and falling asleep? They are not doing many things. Their day, when they are incubating, is almost sleeping and, and watching around, I would say. Sometimes there is some um, active wake when the partner is coming back from the sea. There is, we can observe some uh, cone behavior. Sometimes they are uh, rearranging their, their, their nest. But basically, the penguin, while they are incubating, they are switching very fast between wake and sleep. And this is what is very interesting here. That, that is interesting because I'm wondering about, we know what wonderful swimmers they are. What about when they're in the ocean? How can they be sleeping then? That's a great question. This is the, the, the other part of our study. Because we have been able to record 11 days continuously, we have recorded also the brain activity when the penguin were uh, diving, when they are swimming. And we found several periods of time 
not very long, but several periods of time while the penguin were remaining uh, resting uh, at the surface of the sea, floating. And we found during this period some brain signature that are typical of sleep. Then we can extrapolate that the penguin were able to sleep at sea, even if it's not clear about how long are they sleeping and whether their sleep is as fragmented as when they are on land. Hmm. How different is the chin-strap penguin sleep from how other birds or, or critters sleep? Is there anything similar? There are uh, many uh, birds where their sleep were recorded. And basically, the brain signature, it's quite the same. There is slow wave sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, and there is also unilateral slow wave sleep, which is typical from birds. We found all of these brain signature and behavior in the penguin. They are sleeping in the same way, basically, but the fragmentation of, the, of their sleep is quite unique. It has been reported in a few other uh, penguins, in two or three studies conducted in the 80s, where it was reported some drowsiness, some drowsy state that, in a sense, could be a sort of micro but they are not sustained like in the uh, chinstrap penguin. Is it is it possible you can learn something from the penguins about our own sleep? I mean, maybe we can do the sort of kind of same quick little naps as the penguins do? This would be great if we can just extrapolate just like this. But I would say regarding on, on home sleep, we can't say much. We only can say that there is penguin that sleep in a fragmented way that we are actually not able to do. If you try to sleep like a penguin, I'm pretty sure you would be disturbed cognitively or your attention would be quite uh, um, uh, decreased. The only thing that we can say is that some animals develop some uh, sleep adaptation and it shows that the evolution could have selected some specific physiological traits and maybe one day we can extrapolate and found the mechanism and maybe we can sleep like this one way. But I think it's not tomorrow. Hmm. So during the time that we've been talking, if I was a chin strap penguin, I'd have fallen asleep, what, maybe 80 times? <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm awake enough to, to interview you. Fascinating work, doctor. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. Dr. Paul-Antoine Liberel, sleep biologist at the Neurosciences Research Center of Lyon, France. That's all for this episode. On tomorrow's episode, the climate costs of military operation. See you tomorrow. I'm Rasha Aridi. <laughs>